Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are broadcasting today again via remote access so that in light of the COVID-19 health emergency, we can maintain our social distancing and still bring you today's show. Please be patient if we experience any technical glitches. We hope that everyone listening is safe and healthy and doing what they can to protect themselves and our communities during this continuing health emergency. Wealth Matters is presented to you by Gasowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gasowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel, Adam Gasowitz, and Robert Port. Today, we'll be having a roundtable discussion on a topic we've always enjoyed talking to you about in the past, and we call it Lessons from the Trenches 2.0, Avoiding Family Disputes Over Money, Estates, and Businesses. So let's just start off, Adam, by your telling our listeners a little bit about what Gasowitz Frankel is and what we do. Sure. Uh, well, for over 30 years now, probably 32 years now, um, our firm has specialized in all aspects of fiduciary litigation, fiduciary disputes, individuals, executives, trustees, investors, shareholders, and financial institutions in, in complex estate and trust disputes, guardianship disputes, business disputes, and securities matters. Let's kind of jump in and have some fun. So, Robert, we're all busy right now. Trials are starting to start up um, in, in at least the metro counties of Atlanta. And so we're getting ready for trial. What's kind of the biggest issue that you see cropping up in, in the kind of cases we get? One of the things I've realized over the years is that many of our clients, potential clients, when they come to us, they are almost in the dark about what the planning issues are with respect to a family business or perhaps a parent's will or trust and a lot of what we do initially is to gather the documents, which sometimes they don't have the relevant documents, if they exist, and, and try and sort out exactly what sort of plan. So what, what I see is a, a lot of, if not miscommunication, actually a lot of lack of communication, a lack of communication about what might be the planning, for example, for a family business, for a trust, for a parent's estate plan, for charitable giving, and, and a part of what I find myself doing often is sorting that out for folks so we can figure out what the problem is, if there's a problem, and, and determining a path forward for that. A lot of times it involves just educating our clients on what their rights are and, and what's actually going on with their, with their estate or their family's business. Sometimes when we're talking just about a regular, almost very frequently, the family doesn't know what the patriarch or matriarch or the decedent actually has. And there's a great assumptions that daddy was rich or that he did this or that he did that, but everyone's kind of treated fairly. So that's just a search for documents and information, which is frustrating. Where we tend to be retained is where something is different in the future, whether it be a child treated differently or, or maybe now we've got to run the business, but dad is not there or mom is not there, or there's a trust that we didn't know about or there's been gifts or transfers during life. And let's talk about gifts and transfers during life. They happen. Parents give money to grandchildren, to children for whatever. And, and then how does that kind of, Adam, you could talk about it, but how does that kind of boil up to a dispute sometimes? Depends on who knows about what. I mean, a lot of times parents will give their respective kids as, as they see fit or as, as needed. 
don't tell the other children. And sometimes that is information that doesn't come out until uh, after a parent dies. And one child finds out that the parent has been supporting their siblings, but, but hasn't been distributing the assets fairly. Sometimes it, it comes up in a, a lot of finger pointing about who is taking advantage of, of a parent during their lifetime and, and causing gifts or transfers to be made that, that weren't necessarily what an, an aging parent wanted. And that tends to lead to a lot of disputes that involve, you know, use of powers of attorney or disputes involving uh, perhaps a guardianship or a conservatorship for a parent that is feared by, by one child or another to be not managing their assets well. So you're, you're, I saw kind of two things in what you were saying. One is kind of end of life gifts, things that happen later that weren't kind of part of the norm. And then kind of making gifts or, or, or helping kids out along the way, which may have been over time. And I noted you use the word fairly. And that is what all of our clients say. They say fairly. And when they talk about money going to children or grandchildren, they equate fairly with the same. Is, is, is that kind of creating the problem or is there a way to solve that problem? Depends what you mean by fairly. I mean, I always uh, went by the, the Adam that you know, it's each, each according to his needs. And so, you know, if one child needs more than another, then, then you do more for that child. That's fine as long as you've got two things going on. One, that there is some level of communication among the family so that everyone knows what's going on. And also that uh, the parents are at least perceived to still be confident enough to make those kinds of decisions. And if that's the case and everyone knows what's going on, you have no problems. The, pro- the problems arise when either there's lack of information, lack of transparency. And so some kids find out about things um, later or, or again, when parents start to age and those gifts that seem fair at one time are, are now more taking advantage of, of parents than, than just helping out. So you mentioned the words. So, so I, I'm going to jump on words because I agree with you so much, which is frightening. You, both you and Robert Adam have talked about communication that, you know, if you the, actually have communication of, yeah. or the lack of communication, Robert, talk about, if you can, how somebody can communicate the unequal gifts along the, along the, 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 the lifespan. Parents aren't thinking, and, oh gosh, I'm going to die tomorrow. I'd like you to know what my state plan is today. But frankly, that is what you're talking about. Letting people know along the way, I've helped your sister out of college because I love her. I've helped you out because you were out of a job, whatever it is. So, so how, does, how, does what, how does a family actually do that? Well, you're, you're right. It's, it's very difficult. Lots of folks don't like to talk about money. But uh, to avoid disputes down the road to the extent you can and explain why you may be generous to one child versus another, you know, as Adam said, maybe this one particular child has had some ups and downs in their lives, a divorce, a failed business or whatever, and the other children have been, you know, perhaps reasonably successful. If you explain that in advance, hopefully people will understand and it will not create any resentment. The other thing you can do is when you speak with your estate planner, you can specifically state in your estate planning documents, in your will, whether or not something is what's called an advancement, which is something which would be, if you will, deducted from your uh, the child's inheritance, or whether it is specifically identified as a gift. And if you do that, in theory, that ought to, if not eliminate, perhaps tamp down some of the potential problems when the other children find out that this child or that child got more or less than them. And you can actually say that. I mean, I know wills are all full of legalese, but you can really say, 
I have made gifts over my lifetime. And you can even refer to a ledger or something else that does that. So I want to ask a ledger question because it occurs to me, my parents' age, uh, and you can see, for those who can see me, are older and they may not be computer literate. We, we talk about my father uh, not being stone tablet literate. Uh, our parents may not, may not be computer literate or maintaining things. My guess is that most people that are you know, below 60 or 70 years old actually are computer literate. Are you seeing anyone now maintaining, whether it be in QuickBooks or Mint or whatever the phrase is, using a personal kind of accounting program where you could actually say, here's what I did and put in the memo. Here's what I did and here's why. It's a gift. It's not. It's a loan. And just actually keeping a log. Are we seeing families doing that? And, and if not, should we have our families be doing that? I don't see a lot of families doing it. I don't know about you, Robert. Yeah, no, I don't see that either. Um, although I, I do have experience where uh, seeing where after someone passed away in their papers, there were miscellaneous papers all over the place that so and so, you know, $500 on this date and $1,000 on this date, but, but nothing else. Um, and I know Adam and I have been involved in a situation where, where one of the child executors went through dad's checkbook for the last 20 years and appeared to add up every nickel that one or more other children were, were given and claiming that that's an offset against their, their inheritance. Um, so, Craig, I think, I think that'd be a great idea if, in fact, it's something to be repaid. If, if it's not to be repaid, that can only create problems, I think. Well, I, I, I use one of the accounting programs to make to, to see about my own finances. And I've got kids and had kids. I have one kid left in college to kind of see their spending patterns to show them and help them, you know, do their own, you know, worry about things when they're off on their own. But when I make gifts to anyone, including parents and family and extended family, I actually note. But there is one thing I want to remind our listeners. When you do something in one of those programs, there is what's called metadata. And, and that is kind of important. Metadata is the underlying information on the electronic document. And what that means is you can see when it was done. Because you were talking, Robert, about a case that you and Adam had recently. We've all had, unfortunately or fortunately, our firm has had many, many like that. Everyone goes back and looks at the spending after the fact. And one of the questions is, what did they mean then? Was this document falsified? Did somebody add a word and all of that? When you use the metadata, you can actually see when it was entered. For, for those who aren't computer literate, yeah, there's no, there's no metadata. Well, I guess, I guess the check is the metadata. <laughs> well, you could do, I mean, that's true, but you could go back and make a list. You could say, while you're competent, when you're Adam's age, you can say, so far, I, you know, I am whatever he is, 102 years old today. And I just, you know, while I'm still competent and everyone thinks that I'm normal or as normal as he can be, let's do this. Here's what I have done historically. And you can also state it in your will. You can say, just, I've no, made just, these historical just, gifts totaling X. I'm just not sure it's healthy to do that. I'm not sure it's healthy to, um, uh, to try and keep track of all the gifts you've, you've made to your kids over the years uh, and leave a, a, a paper trail for them to get to get to, to go at each other after the fact. Um, it's, it's, I think it's almost healthier to say, unless, unless I have documented something in the form of a promissory note, whatever gifts I've made to my kids over the years were intended to be just that. I gave them as I saw fit and, and as the need arose. And I don't intend for that to be taken out of their inheritance. And, and the only reason you'd want to keep track of things is if they got 
very far out of whack. That one kid was just really sucking up a lot of, uh, of the family resources uh, uh, as opposed to the others. But, uh, you know, if you want to make sure that it's going to get repaid at some point, then you put it in a promissory note and just document it. And, and that's actually really important. In Georgia and a lot of other states, there's going to be presumptions when money, substantial money changes hands. And the presumption makes total sense, which is if you make a, if you give money to a child or a spouse, it will be presumed to be a gift, even if you don't say anything. And so if it's not supposed to be a gift, you need to be clear. On the other hand, if you give money to a non-immediate family member, it is presumed to be a loan. And so if you meant for it to be a gift, you gave it to a, a close friend or something else, then the presumption is that it's a loan. So you need to be clear when it's not going to be the presumption from a legal standpoint. Let's shift conversation now to what you talked about before, Adam, end of life. We see a lot of estate planning changes at the end of life. How is that coming up and creating conflicts? Well, it's usually coming up in the context of, of uh, an aging parent. Usually it's, it's, it's when there's one parent left. And the, um, the caregiver of that parent, usually one of, of a number of children, is uh, providing all the, all the care. And then, and then the estate plans start to change. You, know, you start to see money leaving mom's account, or you start to see names on documents or bank accounts changing to joint accounts, joint names. And, and you start seeing more and more financial abuses. And it's, it's often, it often takes a while for anybody to realize it, but this is sort of the, uh, a lot of the end of life gamesmanship that we've been seeing in, in many of our cases where, where the need for a guardianship or a conservatorship just to protect whatever mom or dad has left uh, becomes sort of imperative. And we're seeing in today's world a lot of tax changes. So we're, we're going to see some estate plan changes at the end of life just to, to respond to taxes. So Adam, what would be, or, or Robert, what would be some of the solutions when you have some of these changes or gifting at the end of life, what could the family do to minimize conflict or potential conflict? Well, let me, let me mention something. Adam mentioned the need for guardianship or conservatorship at ends of life. We, we often see an abuse of the system where someone attempts to use the system to secure power control over over a parent's assets um and and uh, you know that that seems to be a regular instance we're we're facing in in terms of how to try and eliminate those issues i think a trust with an independent trustee might be a fair solution so let, let's, let's take them one at a time so you could create a trust where you put some or a majority of your assets that provide for you as the person who's aging, but also is very clear as to what will happen in the future. And that does in fact, give somebody the ability to make distributions when you age and aren't able to do it for yourself, but it is a way to document it and hopefully be transparent. Is that what you're saying? Correct, and, and a, an important part of that is from our perspective, and we often get pushback on this, if there's any substantial money involved, have an independent professional fiduciary be involved. We, we often see situations where, where a child, for entirely good reasons, is given, is given that control and uh, unfortunately abuses it. Uh, we often see the same thing. People often use power of, powers of attorney. 
and you may want to reconsider or not consider giving such a broad grant of a power of attorney to someone limit, if you will, what the attorneys call limit their power. Or let, let's talk about, let's just define for our audience. So the, a power of attorney is a document that says, I'm giving someone the authority to step into my shoes and act for me. A trust is where you put money in another pot controlled by a trustee who has fiduciary duties, and they can even get bond. And on the other extreme is a guardianship or a conservatorship, and it's called different names um, in different places, like Britney Spears, what we hear on TV, where a court comes in and says a person is not competent, whether it be an adult or a child, and needs to have somebody step in. And at that point, for a guardian, they actually make your personal decisions. And for a conservator, they make your financial decisions and they have pretty much good authority. Let's talk about powers of attorney. Most states now have forms that can be used, but there's a lot of elections. So should, let me ask kind of the funny question. Should our clients, should our audience be pulling one of those forms off the internet or, or an internet form and just signing them? No. no, no. Although that doesn't mean the forms aren't good. I mean, those forms were generally drafted by the by the sort of leaders of the fiduciary bars in those respective states. They are good forms. Uh, the problem is you don't know which parts of them to use or how to uh, adapt them to your own specific situation unless you've worked with a professional who knows you know your complete picture, your financial picture, your family's picture, and can can make decisions for you. I mean, if you're if you're someone who's you know in your third marriage and you've got kids from two different marriages, or you've got stepkids, you know, just using the form to name one of those many people your uh, your agent under the power may work legally, but it will create all kinds of headaches among the the family members that you leave behind. And so, uh, some sort of advice, estate planning from an estate planning attorney. One thing that we've talked about internally and where we've seen it has been quite successful is when a power of attorney is used, because oftentimes it sits in a drawer for a while and it's only used when something happens, of course. One of the things that you can put in a power of attorney that we're not seeing a lot, but when we do see it, I see great protections, is that when the power of attorney is used, it triggers an obligation to provide an accounting to tell the, the family and typically the children, here's what we've done this year. And it, obviously, if it's suspect, you can at least address it now immediately rather than from 10 years ago. So I, I think having some restrictions or, or having some oversight when you make a significant decision. I'm going to sell that, my that house. Only, that, that, only works, yeah, that only works, though, if everybody in the family knows about it. Right. That, that means you have to disclose the power of attorney exists. And you have to disclose the accounting requirement, but like moving out of a house. Did you sell it? Where did the money go? You could say for significant decisions, but you're right. And you're getting to my next question, Adam, of course, which is if you have these protections and, and the agent uses them, that's great. How do you choose the agent? How do you choose the person you're going to trust when you to step into your shoes? Robert, you want to jump on that one? <laughs> Well, sure. I, I, I guess the short answer is you choose them very carefully. But, but all kidding aside, I, I think what we often see is for entirely understandable reasons, a parent will choose the child who they think is perhaps most successful, you know, the doctor, the lawyer, the CPA, w without really considering the burden that 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 person might might uh, have doing this or considering whether they actually have the sort of 
fortitude, I'll say, and, and the capacity and, and frankly, the integrity to do that. And I, I know a lot of folks are very uh, concerned about the fees and costs of a professional. I am as well. But, but rest assured, if you have any meaningful amount of money and you want it dealt with appropriately, the cost you might pay a professional fiduciary to deal with it, to follow your instructions in your trust or in your will, will be far, far less than you might have to pay our firm if there's a dispute about it and litigation over what can be hundreds of thousands, if not much more money that has disappeared or used, been used inappropriately or unaccounted for. The other thing people don't consider is, is the relationship of the parties. How, you know, if, if you've got a number of kids or, an, or a number of, of ex-spouses, you know, how, how do all these people get along with each other? How much respect do they have for their uh, integrity? How, how communicative are they? And if you're going to name one of them to do a, a job like this, if they don't get along with the others or the others don't trust them or, or, or they, they're, they're more domineering than is appropriate, you end up with the kinds of problems that can't be fixed by picking a, a different person. You got to do what Robert said, which is have a neutral do it, uh, have a corporate fiduciary do it, have a have a you know an attorney or CPA do it. And let me add to that: uh, I know all of us have heard repeatedly, you know, that someone is is nominated as trustee, but it's it's really their wife who has control, or or their their son is is really doing this and they're just rubber stamping it so a adam's correct think think of the entire family dynamic that might be involved if you invest that authority with with just one family member let, let me add a plug for 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 a new industry that's really starting to thrive and it's a good it's called the daily man money manager they're not quite fiduciaries but you you hire somebody while you're competent to help you with your bills and monitor it and they are there as you progress. It's not expensive. It's it's a rel it's typically an hour or two a month tops. It's an hourly bait rate, but you the the person gets comfortable with them and now you see a pattern. You can see kind of how they're spending and as they progress and perhaps deteriorate in health or mental condition, you've got somebody in place, but you've also got somebody that the family members can actually talk to. So we are listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We are your hosts, Adam Gasowitz, Robert Port, and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. Today, we are having a roundtable discussion, Lessons from the Trenches 2.0, Avoiding Family Disputes Over Money, Estates, and Businesses. Robert, I want to go back to something that you, I can't recall, you or, or Adam said before talked about spouses controlling. So, so let's talk a little bit about the role of, of spouses from the perception of the family member who is giving away money, perhaps, and from the family members who are either getting it or in their generation. How do spouses fit in to family disputes? You talk about first spouses or, or second or third spouses? Uh, let's start with first spouses. Let's talk about how spouses can, can either influence decision-making or, or have the appearance of influencing decision-making, or perhaps animosity or distrust of spouses create some funny vibes that change people's perceptions. Well, if you're dealing with first spouses, you know, not a blended family, then, then there's usually more communication, not just between the spouses, but between the parents and the kids, because they have the same kids. There's a, a lot more discussion about uh, what 
what estate plans look like. There's usually a lot more discussion about how things are going to be managed down the road. It doesn't always mean that the spouse would be the best person to, to take over managing the financial affairs of a family if one spouse dies, but at least means that they, they have a common interest. There's less concern that things are, 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 there's going to be abuse when, when you have same kids. So you tend to want to treat them all the same. Things get much dicier when you start getting into second and third marriages, and particularly if there are kids from multiple marriages or there are stepkids that are, that are in the picture. And of course, let's you know, cite the normal statistic. Currently, over 50% of all marriages will, in fact, have a divorce at some point. And of those 50%, 75% will remarry. That is kind of the national, current national statistic. So we're seeing a lot of blended families. We're also seeing families that don't have children now. Kind of a new phenomenon. More and more families by choice are not having children for whatever reasons. And so we're seeing families that don't have children. So they don't have that common bond, whether there's first, second, or third marriages. How does that play out when we get into families that have spouses, but someone in the family doesn't have children, some in the family do? And we're talking about spouses on the second generation level. How does that play out sometimes? If only one of the spouses has children, you don't tend to have as much conflict. The conflict often occurs at the next generation level. So if you don't have kids, there's a lot less to fight about. You, it's you and your spouse, one of you dies, you either remarry with, with all the uh, assets that the couple had, or, or you leave things to charity. I'm really talking about that your children have spouses. You're now, you've, you've lived a long time, you have common children, and now you have spouses, some of whom are good or bad, some whom you like, some whom you don't. Some of the, your children are married and have children. Some are on their third marriage, some are not. Yeah, a lot of people are very clear in their wills that, that, that the assets they're leaving to their kids are for their kids and not for the kids' spouses, that they, they, they make it clear documents that, that they don't want to leave things outright to their kids. They want it to be passed in trust through their kids to their grandkids. Um, some people are, are very clear about it. Some people are, 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 are less concerned. Just like some people have concerns about whether they want adopted kids, if they adopt kids whether they want those to be included in, uh, in, in the distributions. And, and when we mention adopted children, we should also mention in vitro and other ways of, of storing of egg donors and other things where we have new worlds of, of how future generations can be born. Let's, let's, let's kind of shift the topic and, and see something. I, I am seeing in a lot of documents references to a child has a substance abuse issue or as a special uh, mental issue or as you don't like the spouse or they're doing something you don't like and there's special provisions. So kind of humorously, do those provisions work? It, it depends, I guess, who, who is put in charge of implementing those uh, provisions. You know, we've seen trust documents that require adherence to a certain faith, as you say, um, you know, no drug abuse, uh, completing four-year college or technical school. You know, it's, I guess it's the proverbial hand from the grave, but uh, on the other hand, it's, it's what the, the person with the money wanted to, to have happen. And I would suspect that it depends upon the person who is implementing that, how aggressively they wish to, you know, sort of interrogate somebody, you know, have you used drugs? Do you go to church every Sunday? You know, whatever granddad wanted you to do so you could you could get this trust distribution 
and they they put the trustee or or whoever's managing those assets in a very difficult position. You know, we don't generally recommend that people use those kinds of provisions. That that uh, you know controlling from the grave mentality uh, is not generally a good one unless you're dealing with you know kids who you know have some sort of like a substance abuse problem. And in those situations, they work very well as long as the person who's managing those assets is not one of their siblings. You know, those are those are situations where, in particular, you want to use some sort of corporate fiduciary because they are they are trained to deal with those sorts of situations, those sort of special needs cases. And in those situations, they work quite well. And I want to highlight something in that we're now talking about children or grandchildren whom you know. And so, if you're going to do that and you already know this is an issue, I would recommend going ahead and funding the trust now, so it's in existence with whatever rules you have now. Because I anticipate, and I want to hear your thoughts, we now have around the country in Georgia what are referred to as dynasty trusts. So historically, trusts only lasted for a set period of time. Now they can last in some places, you know, 100 to hundreds of years. In Georgia, they can be well over 360 years. So we're talking about generations way in the future. It's very hard to predict what a child is going to be like. So let me ask this question. For, for, for Robert and, and, and Adam, do, do either of you see that there's going to be an advent of new disputes with these dynasty trusts as we get into the second and third generation? I think it's inevitable. I mean, you know, it is hard to predict what's going to happen next year, much less 350 years down the road. So, you know, the restrictions you put in may create all kinds of issues. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sort of frankly, myself astounded that, that someone would put in, uh, in place a trust that long. But uh, inevitably, I think it would, it's going to create further work for attorneys like us who are going to have disputes over what the terms are, whether the terms ought to be changed, whether we ought to avail ourselves of some relatively new provisions that could potentially alter the trust. I, I just see it's a, it's a prescription for, for uh, that's sort of fraught with all kinds of unforeseen problems. And I do want to uh, underscore one thing you said, Robert, if you change the trust. So we think that an irrevocable trust, a trust that can't be revoked, so, so means that it can't be changed. But laws are being passed around the country that allow for change. And, 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 and there's ways, if you have something important that you care about, you need to be in your drafting to say that this term is material and important for you for whatever reasons, because otherwise there's going to be a lot of changes in the future. And, and the reason why will trust now allow for changes in the future is because they last so long. So you've got to have some flexibility, but with flexibility comes the opportunity, of course, for abuse. Let's change subject matters totally. Where we're seeing in our firm, a lot of disputes are family businesses and, and family investments where one person is invested or created an LLC. And there was a great popularity for LLCs for families, historically for tax reasons, but always to put something in an entity for credit or protection reasons. So we're seeing this come up a lot. And I do want to note the statistic, 80% of all businesses are small businesses. That is, that is the national statistic. So we're going to see a lot of family enterprises. What, what, what kinds of problems or potential problems are we seeing Let's talk about both issues, when the family dies or when there's transition or after somebody dies. What are we seeing? Um, we can talk to our listeners about, about family businesses. 
Oh, well, transitioning them to the next generation is, um, I won't say impossible, but um, it is it is difficult to do it in a way that is fair to, to all the family members. You know, it's, it's one thing to have uh, the, the, the founding generation manage a business or to even own it. But if you've got more than one family member, one, one or more children in the family, passing that business on to the family becomes a problem. Either either they're going to try and run it together or there or someone is going to be in charge of it to the exclusion of the others or or one or more of the children may have more of an interest in the business than the others. Sometimes, you know, one, you know, one child may have worked in the business with uh, with dad. And so that child has a greater share of that business so that later on, when the remainder of the business is distributed, it's it's distributed unequally. And so one person has control. Sometimes you've got people who have no interest in the business at all. They go off and, and live their lives, but their siblings remain in the business. And it's very hard to have uh, uh, enough transparency for everyone to feel like they're being treated fairly. The people in the business think they're doing all the work. The people who are not running the business think the ones that are running it are, are taking too much out of the business. It just creates a lot of conflict. It's just a very difficult situation to manage. Okay, Robert, so what are the solutions? Well, let me, let me say this first. You, you mentioned a statistic about the number of small businesses. There's also a saying, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations, which is a way of describing the, the perhaps sad reality that from, from the founder, let's say granddad, through the children until the grandchildren, the business that granddad created may not survive that transition from generation to generation. So the solution in our perspective is to have good, thoughtful, and continually reviewed what, what the attorneys call corporate governance documents, your shareholders agreement, your bylaws, your annual meetings. Uh, again, it goes back to communication and transparency. The, the point of all those documents at the end of the day, no matter what we're talking about, wills, trusts, powers of attorney, is it lays out a roadmap, potentially dealing with how to address problems, but, but in, in all events, just not leaving something to an argument about what's fair or right. The law will often fill in places that aren't dealt with specifically, but if, if you want control, whether it's with respect to how your business is gonna go be passed down, whether you wanna nominate your, your son to be CEO and your daughter to be CFO, and this child will be, if you will, a, a shareholder, but have no involvement in the business. Lay that all out and talk with your, your children, talk with the generations beforehand as to how this is going to work. Because as Adam says, what we see often are conflicts where those that are working get uh, very resentful of those who are not working and those who are not working who have an interest in the business as a shareholder, a limited partner, a partner are entitled to their share of profits, but it, it creates an enormous amount of resentment, certainly for the people who are working. And then on the other side, as Adam says, it creates suspicion when perhaps the profits of the business aren't as much as someone who wasn't working expected and, uh, and has relied upon. And, and they feel like they're, uh, I've had one client tell me their, their salary, they had a salary. It wasn't a salary. It was a distribution from the business. And sometimes it was up, sometimes it was down, sometimes it was nothing. 
And, and uh, unfortunately, they, they just didn't grasp that concept. So a good set of corporate documents that are reviewed and updated. We, we've dealt often with businesses started 30, 40, 50 years ago. A, if you can find the documents, it's surprising. But when we do, they hadn't been updated. And, and it creates a lot of tension and potential argument about how to sort things out when a senior generation passes on, the founding generation. And let's talk about those documents, because this is actually the biggest thing that I think I'm seeing. The documents, when they were created, were, were done primarily for just to create the business or for tax reasons. But the drafter and the family member who was doing it weren't thinking about what happens in the future because they're there. And so they really weren't worried about it. So first, they never used the documents, really. They didn't follow the rules along their lifetime. And now they've passed away and we see a successor generation come in and, and lots of issues come up. Daddy and mommy didn't do it. Why do I have to? So we see a lot of, or they did, they got this. Why can't I? The rules do change upon a change of generation. But when you look at the documents, they don't tell us, how are we going to run the business? And, and so look, thinking about not just the tax reasons or the, or the creditor protection reasons, but saying, how do we run the business? What happens if we have a conflict? What happens if a shareholder, a family member has a need? How do we monetize it? How can we fund a buyout or give them money in a year when there's no profits? We can think about I mean, these but things. If, but if your family can't communicate with each other, if some of them don't trust each other, they can't take over the business. Right. And maybe you need to pay that. And whether their fears about distrust are founded or not doesn't make any difference. If you don't trust somebody, even if they are completely trustworthy, you don't have the makings of a relationship that will sustain that business. And so you've got to find some other solution. You've either got to give you know, some kids the business and other kids something else, or you've got to sell the business and give them all cash. Um, but if you can't, if you don't have the kind of family structure that allows for them to manage a business together or to own an interest in a business together, then the business is going to fail and you've accomplished nothing. And by the way, most businesses fail in the second generation for varieties of reasons. Let's talk about what you just said, Adam. If you think about it and you, and you have a plan, part of that plan may be my kids shouldn't take over as opposed to just dumping it in their lap. Or maybe I need to figure out a way to save money or monetize, or maybe we should be getting life insurance, or maybe I should divide up the assets. Sure sounds like what you're saying is, think about more than just your will, think about how you transition the business earlier. And I know that's hard. And one, one of the things we hadn't mentioned, and we've seen this periodically, is, is a business left or placed in a trust, and then the trustee runs the business. That that removes some of the problems we've identified, it perhaps puts them more so in the trustee's lap. But, but that can often be a way where a trustee who is not tied to the familial issues uh, perhaps wouldn't have a problem getting an independent uh, CEO, CFO to run the place and, and periodically have meetings with the trust beneficiaries to explain what's going on you know, much like a shareholders meeting, and this is what's going on. This is the money we're spending. This is why profits are up or down. This is will be your distribution. So that that's a potential solution uh, that we've we've seen uh, periodically. 
what, what you have answered each of us in every single question that we've raised is if you can communicate early and often, you're much better off and that we really should try as much disclosure as possible. And, and I want to remind people for businesses, you can give the financial disclosures without having to talk about it. You can just, you know, uh, be fair. We're nearing the end of our show. So I want to ask each of you if you could predict what kind of the next wave where you think the greater conflicts are going to come up in the fiduciary, the family business, the family inheritance rules. What do you think is going to be the kind of the growth area, so for so lack of a better word, of, of future disputes among families that deal with their businesses or their money? I think what we've what the trend we've seen and the one we're going to continue to see accelerate is the aging of the parents of the baby boomers and now the aging of the boomers and the the difficulties that is going to cause both in in how they're cared for and how their assets are are transitioned and and you know all the the problems that we see with with families fighting over assets is going to be exacerbated by by this aging and um, and perhaps a more more incompetent becoming more incompetent generation. And I want to I want to to dovetail on that. And we're going to use up the assets caring for an older person who's going to live longer and longer and longer. There's going to be less money for the next generation. I, I agree with Adam because of this undeniable fact: the the transfer of wealth from, if you will, the the greatest generation to our generation is going to be the largest transfer of wealth in history. As a matter of, of fact, transfers like that, the, the dollars that are going to flow necessarily are going to create issues. And you add to it what, what Craig just mentioned, which is healthcare costs and the push and pull between folks who, you know, uh, younger generations who are expecting an inheritance and don't want it to be all spent, uh, you know, on caring for mom and dad or nursing home costs, as harsh as that sounds, we, we often see that, that, that the, the younger generations are, are quite miffed that, that the money they had expected to get are, are going to the care of their elderly parents. So well, it's, not, it's not just that, but people are living longer. And so, yes. you know, if you're living into your, into your 80s and 90s, you know, your kids are in their 60s and 70s, you know, they're not getting their inheritance early, they're getting it late. Uh, and often at a point when they should have already retired on their own. And right. So just to highlight, we're seeing a lot of estates that skip over that generation. That may not have been the expectation when they did their, their estate planning, but that's the reality. People are living. We're, I can't recall the statistic, but we're going to have dramatically more 100-year-olds than we did you know, historically in, in 90s. Just the life expectancy alone in our own lifetime has gone up 20 years. Since we were born to now, life expectancies have, have gone up. So as we wrap up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Our topic today was Lessons from the Trenches 2.0, Avoiding Family Disputes over Monday, over Money, Estates, and Businesses. For more information about Gaslit Frankel and to download our ebook, Top 10 Tips on How to Avoid Estate Disputes, please go to our website at gaslitchfrankel.com and remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag, Wealth Matters. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio Network.